Welcome everybody to Roger's List. We are the podcast where we're watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Guntley. And I'm Michaela Nicholson. Oh, we're so happy to be here today. We're going to be talking about a little movie called In Cold Blood. Uh, but I think first, let's let's go back and look at last week's episode. We discussed Unchien and Alu, and uh, so as we've started doing, we're going to watch the movie, and then we're going to read the essay after we're done watching the movie, Roger Ebert's Great Movies essay. And then feel like dummies, because it's like so well written. big dummies, because <laughs> man, he just, uh, he, he really just na- hits the nail on the head, pretty much any t- anything I'm thinking. Uh how close do you think we got, based on your interpretation of um, this? I think we got close in that he was like, none of this movie is supposed to make sense. Yeah. It's all a dream. Like, I think we nailed the, the nail on the head there. Uh, I think he got a little bit deeper than we did as far as, like, but these are actors, and what do they really represent? And why? what is it to watch a movie, and why are we watching movies? I think he went in deeper with those those questions. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. I, I like... I like the thing that he said that where basically uh, this is a movie made with dream logic. So mm-hmm. there is no meaning to it. If you want to get all Freudian and uh, analyze the dreams of it, you're kind of missing the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that anything that you're putting on it is really kind of a projection. You know, this is kind of a blank. It's like a Rorschach test almost. Mm-hmm. It's like this is what you're putting on it. Um, and I really liked his thing about how, like, anyone who really cares about film gets yeah. to this one eventually. Yeah, that made me feel like, oh, shit, I yeah. get my badge now. <laughs> you got your badge. You got your badge. You're there. Yeah, I yeah. I really care about film. I feel like it's true. I feel like it's mm-hmm. true, especially, like, I don't know, you start digging through it. and Because, I mean, it's a pretty digestible movie. It's like, yeah. oh, this is an important mm-hmm. avant-garde piece of, like, capital C cinema. <laughs> and it's 16 minutes long. It's yeah. not a problem to watch, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a little gross, so you can tell people you endured. It, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that element of it. My favorite line from the whole essay, I just copied this one down, oh, sweet. said, they demonstrated that art and life need not follow obediently within narrow restrictions that have been decreed since time immemorial. Mm. And that in a film that is alive and not mummified by convention, you never know what you might see when you look out the window. Ooh, really good. That. Was that the last line? I think that was the last line of the essay. Yeah. 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 Um, my, I had two favorite lines and they, I sort of alluded to them earlier. Um, one was, we assume it is the story of the people in the film, these men, these women, these events. But what if the people are not protagonists, but merely models, simply actors hired to represent people performing certain actions? Ooh. That one kind of was a little bit of a high thought, like, oh, shit. Oh, man. The yeah. representation of people in film. Ugh. Yes, yes. Um, and then the second one, which sort of ties into that, is um, it seems without purpose. And yet how much purpose really is there in seeing most of the movies we attend? Ooh, so, okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, kick off a movie watching podcast. <laughs> yeah. What purpose is there to any of this shit Why you're about to listen to this? us do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's an awesome. Uh, as always, you can find all of these essays on RogerEbert.com. So I encourage you to go check it out, read up on it, and uh, see if you agree, disagree, see what you got out of that one. Uh, all right. Well, before we uh, get on to this n- top topic of the movie. Uh... Okay. And we are back. So uh, before we get into the topic of the film today, I, I have to ask, uh, what temperature is your blood right now? Uh, Feeling, it's pretty cold. Pretty cold, really? <laughs> okay. See, mine's hot blooded. I mean, you can check it and see, oh, but shit. like, you I know, I I actually. Oh, yeah, yo, that that could be the problem. That could be Whoops. the problem. I think uh, I might be a little too hot blooded going into this discussion, <laughs> but whatever. Let's oh, give it a shot. 
because today we're talking about a movie that neither of us have seen, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is totally new for both of us, which is always fun. But you uh, have read the book? I've read the book. Oh, yes, okay. I have read the book. Uh, this is In Cold Blood. It's from 1967. This is directed by Richard Brooks. Uh, it's an American production starring Robert Blake, Scott Wilson, John Forsyth, and Paul Stewart. Uh, so, what, you know, in the in the micro level, we're going to be talking about In Cold Blood. On the macro level, what we're talking about here is true crime, the yeah. origins, the modern origins of true crime. And we are living in a true crime society. Yeah. False crime, a, a get post, on out of here. A post-serial world. A post-serial <laughs> world, and I am a post-serial girl. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I you know, I, I love a good true crime. I think I feel a little conflicted about the genre in general because mm-hmm. there's like a there's an ethical lapse there an when exploitative you're exploitative a little bit, a little voyeuristic uh, mm-hmm. when you're when you're probing into a real tragedy for your entertainment. Mm-hmm. It has to be handled delicately, and I think there are a lot of resources out there that don't really handle it very delicately. Mm-hmm. You know, but mm-hmm. there's no real denying. You know, as podcasters too, like true oh, yeah. crime dominates the landscape to yeah. a massive degree. Everything, mm-hmm. and I would think our conception of true crime uh, in the modern sense came from a book by Truman Capote called In Cold Blood, which mm-hmm. came out in 1966. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think I think we need to uh, dig into that a little bit. Let's let's start a little biography of Richard Brooks, a filmmaker I was not familiar with before this. You've never this. seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? I hadn't. No, I've... I'm I've, so surprised uh, you're like a theater guy. I am. I've read the play many times. <laughs> I've never seen the movie. Huh. Uh, but yeah, Richard Brooks, uh, he was born Reuben Sachs in 1912. He was the mm-hmm. son of Russian Jewish immigrants who moved to Philadelphia in 1908. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as a filmmaker, Brooks is, he's interesting because he's one of those few filmmakers who thrived in like the classic studio system mm. and in like the 60s, like an independent film scene. Mm. Like he got to span both worlds mm-hmm. and he was equally adept at both. Interesting. So like he specialized in making high gloss productions of classic literature. So he made the brothers Kamarazov uh, with uh, Yul Brenner, Cat in a Hot Chain Roof, Elizabeth Taylor and Blackboard Jungle which is like one of the first movies about inner city schools, you know, Mm. so it's kind of a classic movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in 1960, Brooks won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the film Elmer Gantry, which is a uh, satire about a crooked televangelist, Mm. which I had never heard of it, and it sounds great. Joel Osteen of his day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, so Brooks continued to have a very successful but rather low-key career for years and years. Uh, his last film was Fever Pitch, which is a thriller starring Ryan O'Neill from 1985. <laughs> not a romantic comedy starring I, Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> not, not as much, not as much. Uh, but Brooks died in 1992 at the age of 79. Hmm. Seems like kind of a cool guy. Like the more I dig in, he seems like kind of an interesting filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about In Cold Blood. So have you have you read this book? I have not. You have not read this book before. Okay. I went in completely blind. Oh, okay. All right. Have you seen like Capote or any of the movies about him? I know that Phillips and I have was gay and mm. those are the two things i know about capote well there you go uh <laughs> this might be the only time we get to talk about capote on this show oh, interesting. He, he was a fascinating figure he was one of the few like openly gay writers of his era mm-hmm. who was not only accepted but he was celebrated as like a brilliant writer and he never really tried to hide mm-hmm. who he was which mm-hmm. is kind of cool uh he was he was a character he was like a big larger than life character in the classical sense he had this very distinctive kind of high-pitched lisp, mm-hmm. like a very unusual voice. Like if you hear Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. doing in the movie, it it's sounds distinct. exaggerated, but uh-huh. it's pretty dead on. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and he he ran in a lot of big celebrity circles, but he was also a storyteller. He liked to make up relationships with celebrities he never met. So you always have to take everything he says with a little bit of a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. So his biggest breakout was his first novel, was a novel and later film adaptation of Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1965. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. In 1965, he published In Cold Blood, which is um, kind of the work he's become best known for since, I think, overall. Mm. So the writing and conception of this novel is uh, it's covered very well in the film Capote. So Capote is literally all about the writing of this book and oh. his relationship with Perry Smith mm -hmm. and with Harper Lee and everything like that. So definitely worth checking out. Cool. Um, the Cliff's Nose version here is that Capote became fascinated uh, with the 1959 murder of the Clutter family of Holcomb, Kansas. So he and his best friend Harper Lee, they traveled to Kansas to investigate the crime. And so the convicted killers are Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. And they granted Capote unprecedented access at this point. Like mm. no one had had this detailed and long lasting a conversation with a convicted murderer mm -hmm. at this time. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, Capote developed like kind of a close relationship with Perry Smith while they were well in car while he was incarcerated. You know, they had a really close friendship in a, a strange sort of way. Um, so Hickok and Smith were both hanged to death on April fourteenth, nineteen sixty-five. Capote spent six years total writing this book, and it wound up being a huge critical and commercial success. I believe it's still the second highest selling true crime novel ever behind oh, wow. Helter Skelter. Huh. Um, and it kind of helped popularize both the, the true crime genre and kind of the narrative nonfiction novel, which is mm -hmm. how it rolls out if you read it. It's like a very crisp, entertaining... It reads like a novel. It's just made of all true facts. Yeah. Uh, there were many concerns uh, around the time about the truthfulness of this book. Uh, a lot of critics accused Capote of omitting important details or fabricating different story elements to kind of be more colorful and exciting. Mm. In the favor of... The killers or in the favor of the family? I don't think it necessarily like exagger. I think it's more just kind of exaggerating certain mm. details more than um, yeah. anything specific. Something I'm sure is not unfamiliar to true crime. Yeah, narratives. exactly. Exactly. You got to come up with some some fantabulous stuff. <laughs> so, all right. So I wanted to challenge you, Michaela, to okay. uh, as kind of a recurring bit on this show, you're going to give us a, a one sentence, a one sentence pre uh, summary of this movie <laughs> okay. as much as you can. This is one sentence, but it has three commas. Okay. Um, all right. <clears throat> the end of 1950s innocence, comma, Kansas noir, comma, two despicable dudes on the run from the law, comma, we hope the law wins until the very end. Nice. Okay. All right. It's almost like a haiku. I like that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that's really good. That's a good way to put it. So... <laughs> Yeah. All right. So uh, let's let's break down this movie a little bit. So uh, in Cold Blood, 1967, shot all in black and white, a very, very luscious, like beautiful black and yeah, white movie. Gorgeous. Um, right off the bat, it kind of gets under your skin. The very first opening shot, because we have this very discordant kind of jazzy score by Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. And we've got this really extreme kind of film noir lighting uh, and cinematography done by Conrad Hall. Mm -hmm. And our first shot of this movie is just Perry Smith on a bus playing guitar, cast in total shadow. Mm -hmm. And we just get a nice close-up of the bottom of his shoes, which become like a very yeah. important element to come later. Um, I I mean, it, right off the bat, this movie just like grabbed my attention. And I'm just like, holy shit. Okay, Are you is, a noir fan? I'm a big noir fan. Uh -huh. Like... But I don't even know if I would necessarily call it a noir. Like, it, it's got noir lighting and, and It looks style. like a noir and it walks like a noir, but, like, the content 
is a bit less. There's so. something going on mm -hmm. different here because, you know, so the the big change that uh, Truman Capote introduced to the true crime was kind of taking away the suspense of it necessarily. Like, yeah. we're not wondering who did it. Mm -hmm. um, we're more interested in why they did it and how they did it, yeah. uh, which is kind of a more... It, it requires a more psychologically in-depth analysis of mm -hmm. the motivations of the killers. And so it kind of brings it into like a squicky sort of... It's not a headspace you necessarily want to be in, but it's also kind of a fascinating place to be. Yeah. I've never seen like such a human portrayal of characters like this, of killers, and such like, um, I don't know, unafraid to be unsympathetic. Like, they were really despicable. Yeah. For the first, I think, 90 minutes, I was like, I hate these people. Yeah. Why am I watching them, you know? And, I mean, we're definitely meant to uh, empathize more with Perry than yeah. we are with Dick. I think, yeah. I think uh, the portrayal of Dick, both in the book and in Capote and in mm -hmm. this... He's is, like slimy and like a like slender, charismatic yeah. misogynist. He's kind of what we think of as like a a, a serial killer. He's, yeah. he's very yeah, like you said, he's very he's he's just completely sociopathic about his intentions. Um, I mean, he is capable of some kind of performative uh, compassion for his parents mm -hmm. uh, at least, mm -hmm. but nothing that he does is motivated by much of anything other than his own needs mm -hmm. you know like so scott wilson plays uh dick hickok we should talk about him a little bit scott wilson who uh i did not know was an actor for this long i knew him from the walking dead oh yeah cool. he was herschel on the walking dead for a couple seasons mm -hmm. um he's very good in this very yeah. uh movie star quality got a movie star he's not like a he's not like a handsome <laughs> man necessarily but no, he's but got he's a like a leading man he's like a comfortable dude he's mm -hmm. he's comfortable on screen and he's very uh charming and he kind of yeah. gets under your skin a bit yeah but uh hickok has kind of like i get the sense that he's sort of fashioning himself throughout this movie as like the the outlaw poet the outlaw mm -hmm. philosopher mm -hmm. but he doesn't really believe any of this shit he's saying mm -hmm. like he talks uh what was one of the quotes i had here like he he talks about uh, two different kinds of laws, one for the rich and one for the, one for the poor, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's got kind of this low key idea that they're sticking it to the man, or mm -hmm. that they are like Robin Hood figures, or that yeah. the system they're kind like of a made Bonnie them this and way. Clyde type. Yeah, yeah, but he, that that's clearly not what motivates him. His philosophy is half baked at best. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't. I don't think he believes any of his own bullshit. You he know, he just seems greedy. Yeah, and and just like. He he's told he discovers this opportunity to make a lot of money, mm -hmm. and the only obstacle between them and that money is a long drive and killing four people, mm -hmm. and it's never a question that he's going to kill these people in his head. Like this entire time, they're going there specifically to kill these people, and he just thinks it's a genius idea because he's leaving no witnesses. Yeah, and he doesn't have any. He seems to not have any guilt or like doubt about it. Right. Whereas I feel like. I feel like Perry is like this like tortured artist type. Yeah. Who is constant is like the one who's like, wait, hey, stop, let's think about this. Yeah, and not even constantly, but like he does. When they're about to go into the clutter house, he is mm -hmm. the one who says, Maybe we should just rethink this mm -hmm. and we should stop. And the cruel irony of all of that is that at the end of the day, when it comes time to finally do it, Perry's the one who kills all four of them. Yeah. And Dick doesn't kill any. Yeah. Uh and I don't know what necessarily... What do you think that says? Um, well, I think about the way in which it happened, where 
things it i it made me really uncomfortable uh when dick was about to like molest that girl yeah and i was like oh he's terrible like why why would i even give this guy my attention and then and then like and then perry swoops in and he's like no stop and like i'm like i'm supposed to empathize with you because you're like not completely complicit in this act yeah so i was very like anti both of them in that moment and then there was an interesting sort of like cut to this to his dad yeah and which we later learn is his dad almost killing him yeah um and that's i guess i read it as like pair he just snapped yeah and he like had these visions of his dad and he was just like just let's just get this fucking over with yeah which ugh, i don't know yeah it is ironic that that it's him and I think we get the contrast, too, between, like, you know, Dick, we, we get to see that he has a family. He has a mother and a father that care about him and, and mm-hmm. treat him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Perry does not necessarily. Like, his his father beats his mother to death because, yeah. uh, well, no, she doesn't. He, he beats her a lot and that forces them to leave. Yeah, there was that moment when he was like... I caught her with that dude. And then he, like, looks off, and then he's like, anyway, she died of, like, vomiting while drunk. And it yeah. just was like, mm, eh. um, I think we're missing a connection here. I'm wondering here. But, I mean, yeah. Perry Smith in real life, he bounced around to a lot of different foster homes, mm-hmm. many of them abusive. Like, mm-hmm. he, he had a very rough go of it. And then there's the uh, the motorcycle accident that we see in this movie that kind mm-hmm. of left him with a painful limp yeah. for the rest of his life. You know, yeah. so... There are a lot of different elements to Perry, and I think we should t- let's talk about Robert Blake a little bit yeah. as as Perry because uh, this is my first time seeing him in anything. I was familiar with who he was for for reasons that we'll get into, but um, his presence on screen was very interesting. He's very stout, very mm-hmm. compact. They actually make a comment in the movie that his proportions are not quite right. You know, he's yeah. like a very top heavy. <laughs> Upper half, very broad, muscular, and then... At first, when he was on screen and moving around, I was like, this is like a discount James Dean. Almost, yeah, but he's, he's again, like, he doesn't have, like, a movie star handsomeness to him. Yeah, he's, there's a boyish to him. Yeah, and he, he's just, he looks like kind of a mug, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I thought when he walked on screen was, like, man, if they made a 1960s version of the X-Men, this is Wolverine. <laughs> like, this is who outcasts yeah. Wolverine unequivocally. Like, he's uh-huh. this little ball of tension and uh, and frustration, and yeah. he looks like he's just, like, one sudden movement away from snapping. Yeah. Like, the range, though, of, like, his anger and fury versus, like, when he's the weakest. Like, yeah. I don't know if we want to spoil anything, but near the end when he yeah. asks if he can use the bathroom before being hung right like i thought that was like oof. like and he's sweating and he's like looking the guards in the eye and it was just such a uh a, a show of vulnerability that like kind of hit me yeah yeah mm-hmm. i you know this is shot in a very like franking kind of matter of fact mm-hmm. way but at the same time there are lots of little stylistic flourishes it's like yeah. i think which there's there's an interesting like confluence of kind of style versus voice here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the style is a little kinetic at times, mm-hmm. while the performances are very understated. Like uh, Brooks specifically wanted to cast two guys who are not movie stars. The mm-hmm. studio wanted Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, oh. which uh, every studio was trying to get Steve McQueen and Paul Newman in a movie <laughs> together, and they never wanted to do it. They, he was supposed to be they were supposed to be Butch and Sundance. Oh really? But there there was a squabble over billing on the poster. Like they oh didn't like God. neither of them wanted to oh. be anything other than first build. 
they Men. finally got around this with uh, this is a offshoot but they finally got around this with um the poster design for the movie the towering inferno which mm. they're both in and they did it by like paul newman's name is first but it's at the bottom of the poster and steve mcqueen's <laughs> name is second but it's at the top oh so my you God. stagger it like oh. that so if you ever see that in a movie poster, it's because people we were fighting over Billy. these two dudes' egos. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Lord. So if you ever see that, that's why. Jesus. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So they, he, uh, Brooks is casting these guys because they look authentic. Mm. Authenticity is clearly like a very important thing for them here because uh, in the I watched the trailer of it and mm. I love old movie trailers because they're just so <laughs> descriptive and really weird. <laughs> But uh, seven of the people in the jury were the actual members that convicted oh. uh, uh, oh, the two guys. Like oh. they they shot in the actual clutter house. Like oh, they shit. shot in oh, the really? actual uh, the actual gas station where they stopped to get gas. Like all these oh, real God. locations were used in it. And um, the trailer was making a big point about how these two actors look exactly like the real guys to the point where they overlay each other's faces oh, shit. and uh huh. interestingly when you put scott wilson's face over dick hickok's real face he turns into rudy giuliani oh no make of that what you oh, will gross. um but yeah <laughs> so authenticity is definitely a big thing but there's also just all these very interesting stylistic choices mm-hmm. like the quincy jones score and the the interesting use of cross-cutting yeah. i don't know what did yeah. you think of that did, yeah well i are we going to talk about that one scene with that prostitute? Oh, let's talk about all the kids? scenes. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess we should say, like, if you're going into this, the, we're going to spoil stuff. Oh, well, we're going to yeah. talk about the whole movie. So, really? Sorry. Um, but, yeah, that scene in particular where it was, like, it was the first time in the movie where it sort of took me off guard. Like, up until that point, I was like, okay, we're going through. These are, like, very well put together shots. I dig it. But then this happened where, where Dick brings back a prostitute. First of all, he jokes to Perry he's like you better pack your stuff and he's like just kidding like I'm comfortable with you and then he winks and I, I thought that was just gonna be like a little haha and then Perry would get out of the room mm. but actually well maybe he was I still don't know but the way that it's shot is like Dick brings back this girl to his room and it and it cuts to Perry like sitting down at like a vanity or something mm-hmm. and then there's also kids in the shot yeah. who are watching this like weird sexual interaction happening and they're crying and I wasn't sure who they were I was like are these her children and and then another guy walks in and like violently assaults this woman Mm. um who doesn't have a name which most women in this movie don't but um and then Perry's there and I'm like why isn't he doing anything is he actually there are we like cutting between two different places or two different times I was very confused but I was very interested well uh, well what was happening was it was a it was a flashback that was his mother he was remembering uh they all had to be in the room like watching their drunken mother like having sex with this random guy and then his father burst in uh, whooped both of them like super bad and like degraded her and that's gotcha. just kind of what he had to witness ah. so yeah I think that was just uh, uh, triggering that kind of I flashback see. I there. see okay damn I was way off Thank no you. no no you're good yeah like I don't know that, that's a lot of interesting I think um and this is harkening back to the book too but it's kind of the argument of nature versus nurture you know like mm-hmm. uh Dick is Nate Dick is like this by nature he's mm-hmm. he's just kind of a sociopath because he's He's been raised well and he's charming and he's like the all-American, he even refers to himself as the all-American boy in one scene, you know, mm-hmm. but he's like this cold monster. And mm-hmm. you, I mean, maybe I'm over-reading it, but you do get the sense or you get the, the, the impression the movie wants you to think 
that if Perry's circumstances growing up had been different, he wouldn't have been the way he was. Yeah. Like he was shaped by his environment oh, more than Dick was. Drama. So it, it's interesting to see the two sides of that. And um, obviously our sympathy is going to go more with Perry for all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know much about Robert Blake's real life? I don't. Okay. Uh, Robert Blake uh, was accused of murder oh. uh, in his later life. It was a very public case in the 2000s. So, uh, so Robert Blake, you know, he was a former little rascal when he was a kid. Uh-huh. And then in the 70s, he was the lead of this show called Beretta, which is like a cop show that was pretty big for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2001, he was charged with the murder of his estranged wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley. She was shot to death in the passenger seat of his car uh-huh. while he was going inside a restaurant. His excuse for going in the restaurant was to pick up his gun. Uh-huh. He left a gun mm-hmm. in the restaurant. It uh, look good. So it's a, it's a weird situation. Uh, his wife was married nine times. Mm-hmm. She had a reputation for uh, shaking down celebrities. Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of her thing. She would target wealthy older men and then kind of leave them in acrimonious uh, stages, you know. So at the same time she was dating uh, Robert Blake, she was also dating Christian Brando, Marlon's Mm. son. At at one point she got pregnant. She told both of these men that it was their baby. She's trying to shake them down to pay for it. Oh, my God. Uh, Blake wound up, like, winning that custody battle. Uh, And so they they were technically married, but they didn't live together. They didn't like each other. She had the baby. Oh, yeah. Right. They they just didn't like each other. It was a whole contentious thing. Damn. So a lot of the speculation was that either Blake killed her or Blake uh, hired a stuntman friend of his to kill her while he was in the restaurant. Oh, shit. Uh, there was, they didn't find enough to acquit him. Um, so he was, he was let go. And then I think there were charges leveled against him in a civil court later. Oh. But very sordid story. Yeah. Like, and an, again, like a very Hollywood true crime kind of story yeah. and it's an interesting uh contrast with the, the this role here <laughs> this that film. kind of yeah. brought him to the world's attention him so playing a murderer yeah yeah oh lordy um i really like going through my notes here like yeah what did you think like about the relationship between these two men i was picking up some homoerotic yes, vibes i was and no and going into it like knowing who it was written by and and like I had just watched Thelma and Louise a couple days ago. Oh, yeah. So I was like, give me gay people on the run. Yeah. This is what I want. And totally. Like, but the difference is with Thelma and Louise, A, that movie is a lot more fun. Yeah. And like it has warmth and tenderness and like clearly these girls care about each other. It's harder to tell with these two men who seem to harbor a lot of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. That they care about each other. They don't really show that much affection for each other, other other than in these sort of tongue-in-cheek ways, like like Dick leaving the room and making some comment about uh, Perry being there while he has sex. Yeah. Um, but they do spend, like, almost the entire movie together. And they, I mean, they die together. I mean, they they care about each other. Yeah. And I I, I wanted a, I wanted more homoerotic subtext, because I oh, always sure. do. But, yeah. But, like... That's kind of I I feel like I don't know if I said this already but I found the first sort of 90 minutes of this movie to be a bit of a slog mm. and everything until they really until they got to the clutter house I think um but like that's sort of what kept me going was like the relationship dynamic between these two guys and how their personalities sort of bumped up against each other. Yeah. I kind of read like that 
I, I didn't think Hickok was gay. I think Perry might be. Mm. And I think Hickok knows that and is mm. manipulating him. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, he says, oh, yeah, you can stay and watch me have sex. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Perry doesn't really have an interest in women or doesn't display an interest in women in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he even stopped, like you said, he stops the attempted rape of, Ka- rape of Kathy Clutter towards right. the end. Yeah. And uh, the way that Hickok, like, uses baby and honey, like, mm-hmm. gra- like liberally throughout his speech, yeah. like, like, he's trying to charm him, like, he's mm-hmm. trying to ingratiate him. Like, so I don't think it's something spoken. And I think if you confront either of them about it, they'll deny it. But yeah, I think, of course. but I think Dick is familiar. I think he, I think he knows what he's doing when he's mm-hmm. talking to Perry like this. And I think he knows that maybe Perry's got some feelings for him. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up one moment yeah. um, that sort of irked me. And I wrote it down just so, um, I'm just going to read it. Uh, yeah. There is something that doesn't sit quite right with me. It's a quick but jarring moment of casual racism that happens early-ish on in the movie that's brushed aside so fast you might miss it. I do, do you know what moment I'm talking about? I, I know of an express moment kind of towards the end of the movie, but what, uh, what are you when, talking about? Well, uh, maybe it's not towards the beginning, but it's when they're like looking for a ride. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the, okay. the, the two black men right. come by and, and pick them like, up. Right, and they're like, not from you. Yeah. And it, uh, I, okay, so I don't understand how that moment in particular informed our understanding of the characters. We already knew that they were terrible people from their disrespect, mistreatment, and violence against women, and also the murdering. Yeah. Their racist attitudes never really come up again. And it happens, I guess not early on, but it happens like in the middle enough that I was actively upset that I had to spend the rest of the movie with these characters and was expected to empathize with them. At the time, it kind of changed when they got to prison. But Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering what you made of that moment, just because it seemed so, like such a an outlier. It it felt like like a very ironic um, like uh, contrast to to what they were doing because these are two white guys who are literally murdering and stealing their way across the country. Mm-hmm. And what's the one? What's the first thing that Dick says after he like sends them along and refuses to get a ride? He said, "Oh, they probably would have robbed us." And of what? Of what? Yeah. yeah. So he's so paranoid that these two friendly black men who are trying to give them a ride are going to rob them, mm-hmm. even though they've literally been stealing cars and they've murdered a family of four and they've just been wreaking hell across the country this entire time. Mm-hmm. So it shows a lack of awareness, and it also mm-hmm. shows the socioeconomic stratification here of like. Yeah, they're going to dismiss these guys out of hand because of the color of their skin when they're actual monsters. They're mm. actual cold-blooded murderers. Mm. So, like... So, a moment of irony. It's a moment of irony. It's a moment of uh, uh, commentary, I think, mm. on the state of racial relations in the country. So, mm. yeah. it does paint them as, like, unsympathetic characters, but, like... But again, notice it's Dick who says it. it's Dick right. who dismisses them. Yeah, and he's not the one we're meant to empathize right. with at it's all. Perry because Perry, who's like complicit at best. Yeah. And, well, maybe at worst, and sort of like anti at best. Yeah, he's Perry's passive. He's mm-hmm. just going to go along with whatever Dick kind of tells him to do. Right. And so, yeah, it is one more vile trait that Dick has. But again, it's it's he's not the one that we're supposed to be rooting for. If, well, I mean, we're not supposed to be rooting for anybody. <laughs> yeah. But he's not the one we're supposed to be caring about. Right. And I, I, I guess, can we talk about the ending? I think we should. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, definitely. That's... Well, I guess the, we should point out there's like a kind of a three-act structure mm-hmm. to this. Like the first act is them planning and executing the crime, which we don't actually see until the end. Mm-hmm. The second act is them trying to get away and also the uh, police investigation with John Forsyth uh, leading the, the police to try and find them. Mm-hmm. 
And then the final third uh, of the movie is takes place in prison. It's right. about the sentencing and the capturing and the eventual execution. Yes. I thought, I guess thinking about it now, I thought the police stuff was actually the weakest part. I agree. And it's, it, it felt a little more perfunctory. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen this kind of stuff before in movies. Like that's, this isn't like watching a police investigation isn't as exciting. Yeah. And there wasn't really interesting. Like they were, there weren't, there wasn't anything remarkable about these policemen. Like they weren't necessarily experts, but they weren't really like dummies either. So I didn't really yeah. understand like what the point of spending so much time with the police was. Yeah. Uh, I did absolutely love the way that they used smash cuts uh, mm-hmm. in this movie because firstly, mm-hmm. Like we get a nice, we get a smash cut in the beginning, uh, indicating that the murder has happened. It's just showing Kathy Clutter turning off the lights in her room, and then it, the whole movie goes straight to black, dead silence, mm-hmm. and then we come back and the deed's been done already. Mm-hmm. And they do this again when they get arrested. They're driving through Vegas. Hickok makes some reference about pulling over to play some cards. It's like, what do you know? Yeah. What are you saying? You feeling lucky today? Yeah, it happened so fast. And then smash cut, they are in jail. Yeah. They are in jail for yeah. that. Like, we don't see them arrested. It's not a big dramatic thing. Mm-hmm. It's, he just says, are you feeling lucky? And then they are in jail. <laughs> yeah, that was a good cut. And uh, they're not going to get away with it. So I, it's a it's a really cool way that this movie kind of issues like these typical like dramatic uh waves that you would see in the standard movie you know just kind of cut right to the chase Mm -hmm. but yeah let's talk about the uh the the crime and punishment element of it yeah like i did like the way and again brooks was using cross-cutting in a very smart way like we see uh perry like flick his cigarette over a bridge and then we cut to like a metallic crane splashing in the water dredging for like any evidence you know and we get a lot of that but Mm -hmm. Once we're in prison with these characters, this becomes a pretty different movie. Oh, like the yeah. message of the movie kind of sneaks up on know, you I in a very so interesting way. Apprehensive. Like when they were in prison, I was thinking about, you know, our current world climate and mm. the criminal justice system and prisons and the death penalty. And I was like, oh, this sucks. Like, I know they like murdered people, but like, I don't think this is, I don't think this is the way. And I was like, is this a movie that's, not glorifying but like endorsing the prison system and then there's this exchange with i don't know if they were guards or like detectives or what at the end where one of them i I wrote it down actually um one of them says they're talking about the death penalty or hanging these men and he says well maybe this will put a stop to it and the other one replies never has awesome line Mm -hmm. and this is richard brooks bringing his own personal politics into the movie he very he was a very uh vocal opponent of the death penalty and he wanted to make this last third of the movie specifically about that Mm -hmm. which is a very interesting choice and Mm -hmm. something we hadn't really seen in movies to this point because we'd seen executions obviously we'd seen hangings electrocutions everything like that Mm -hmm. and i think the uh, the coded language of that imagery when we saw in movies before that was just that this is a deterrent. This is the thing. This is the end result of a life of crime. You know, or this is this is a thing a completely innocent man gets, like yeah. in the Green Mile or whatever. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It was weird to hold the two truths that they did murder this family, this innocent family, yeah. and like do all these horrible things. But also, like, I don't really want them to be hung in this way. Right. Yeah. It, it, it forces us to really, really look hard at it, mm-hmm. which is pretty groundbreaking for the time. It really wants us to see what this process looks like. We get we go through it in painstaking detail yeah. with both guys. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we have to wait five years too, which seems like its own form of misery. Exactly. Yeah, they waited five whole years before they had to be executed because they kept uh, uh, launching appeals and having them rejected. Yeah. Um, so they've just been sitting waiting for this day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you you see hanging or executions in movies before this and it's always just like you know oh this is what he gets for being a no good dirty gangster see Uh you know it's like it's always from the perspective of this is a bad man and something bad has happened to them and and Mm -hmm. justice has been served Mm -hmm. and this movie is really confronting you with that just saying is there any justice in here Mm -hmm. all that's happened now is that three families have been destroyed uh and um so the the execution scene itself I think some of the specific imagery in this movie is really going to stick with me. In particular, uh, Perry chewing gum under yeah. his hood and chewing like faster and faster. Chewing faster and pull. faster, yeah. And he's just he's he's just chewing the gum. And yeah. the last shot of the movie is a slow mo shot of him falling, of the, the gallows being loaded, sound. and the heartbeat dying out mm-hmm. as he falls to his death. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's very jarring and it's very unflinching and. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that this movie went in that direction, like mm-hmm. to the point we actually have brought in a Capote analog in this movie. You notice there was kind of a reporter type mm-hmm. who showed up in the last third of the movie. We yeah. never really get their name. Uh, I assumed he was just a Capote stand-in. He, he is, yeah, yeah, and that's all he's kind of meant to be. And they're the ones that were having that discussion you were talking about, about mm-hmm. the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I thought it was a really cool way to like really force us – to look at this and the contrast between having just had to watch the murder sequence we mm-hmm. we come back like towards the end of the movie when Perry's telling his story and giving his confession and we see the murder play out yeah. and there's so much weight there's like weight given to both like there's weight given to the murder like the him going through slicing the dad's throat killing them one by one like especially when he gets to the last girl and yeah. she's like screaming like that was really tough yeah. but there's weight given to like him standing at the gallows and like seeing all these like little pieces come together that will eventually kill him yeah and i mean that's the effect Uh, we were just forced to spend two hours with these people Mm -hmm. like we've gotten to see their lives and walk around in their skins a little bit and and kind of see and it's not and again we're not meant to like these guys we're not meant to Mm -hmm. sympathize with these guys necessarily but we are meant to feel something when they die and we are meant to Certainly, like, they are a victim of circumstance. Absolutely. And I, I think the movie just wants... To, I don't think the movie has any answers. I think it just wants us to confront this dichotomy and just say, mm-hmm. like, yeah, there are horrible, horrible monsters in the world. Mm-hmm. Is the solution just to kill them? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, And the movie doesn't have answers, and I don't either, mm-hmm. but I really appreciated that it kind of confronted it. Yeah. Um, it really makes you. I, I think it's fascinating how I could feel the gears shifting in my brain in this movie because I was so ready to discount it. Just because, like, I was like, okay, here we go. Here's all these dudes and they're doing this stuff and I don't really care. Yeah. And, like, I, I was not a fan of, like, how, I don't know, the treatment of women in the movie. And, like, just, like, I think it just dawned on me in the in the clutter house scene and in the prison scene, my brain was just like, Oh shit, <laughs> this is all landing now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Weirdly, we've come very light on women, uh, in, in the show so far between our two episodes, <laughs> two out of two. there's been like three women in both of these movies. Uh, and next week won't be necessarily better, <laughs> oh, no. uh, but there are a lot of women on this list. Uh, but you know, like Roger Ebert has always been like a champion of female filmmakers, <laughs> but at the same time, there are only four films directed by women on 
this entire list. Oh, Roger. Only four. Only four. Yeah, which uh, I think you can do better than that. Um, But yes, I I really liked a couple of like little random notes I had. I liked that they kept referencing Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, but he was in one of these actors was in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Were they? Apparently, according to Letterboxd. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that's awesome. I would check that and I was like, whoa, really? But yeah, yeah. I liked that they said that and Double Indemnity because those are the two movies that I was thinking of. Well, and I love that they were talking about the Treasure of Sierra Madre like because I I think a lot of people remember half of that movie. (laughs) Like you don't remember the later half. Like the first half of the movie is like, Oh, adventurers setting out, looking for lost gold and finding it. And the second half of the movie is descending into paranoia and murder, which mm-hmm. is exactly what happens to these guys. Yeah. They start getting more and more paranoid of each other mm-hmm. and suspicious. And like when it comes down to it, they're going to turn on each other. Um, so I, I think that's interesting that they they had that same kind of misremembering of that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I love little touches like, you know, they, they at one point, there's just a very brief section of the movie where they uh, give a ride to a little boy and an mm. old drunk man mm-hmm. and they're just collecting Coke bottles off the side of the street. Yeah. The old drunk man is just passed out, buried under Coke bottles that fill the entire yeah. backseat of the convertible. Mm-hmm. And then they just drop them off. And then like, in the meantime, the score is Quincy Jones playing Coke bottles. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's it's a really cool little touch it's an on odd, there. Uh, break. Yeah. Misery. Very odd. Yeah. Very <laughs> odd. Uh, it, it is. It's almost like a. It's almost a fun scene uh-huh. in a very dark movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple little bits of trivia that I found here. Um, so yeah, uh, this movie has been filmed in one way or another uh, quite a few times. This is the first, uh, but there were f- there was a four-hour miniseries that aired on CBS in 1996 where Anthony Edwards played Hickok and Eric Roberts played Perry Smith. Hmm. Have you seen it? I have not seen it, <laughs> no, but uh, I just uh, did some research on it. Sam Neill, I believe, is playing the uh, uh, detective. Ah. Um, and then the writing of this book was the central focus of the film Capote. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, it was not the only film to cover the subject that year. That came out in 2006. And just a few months later, the movie Infamous came out. Mm-hmm. And that starred Toby Jones playing Capote, Sandra Bullock as Harper Lee, and Daniel Craig played Perry Smith. Wow. And it's like almost exactly the same story. Huh. Like they came out within a few months of each other. And Infamous got much less of a response. Like apparently Toby oh. Jones is very good in that movie, but it's also a very slick more Hollywood production than Capote mm. was. Okay. Um, so yeah, I already mentioned they introduced a, a surrogate character for Capote, like mm. later in this there movie. There was just like a Capote like renaissance. Yeah. This time. Weirdly, like I don't know what happened if one was like a blacklist script or something, or mm. they were just like too similar and wanted to compete. But mm. it was almost the same movie. It was about the writing of In Cold huh. Blood Strange. by Truman Capote, and yeah. yeah. Um, so the movie was shot in the real clutter home, like I said. They were, and all the pictures on the walls are of the actual family. Oh they gosh. left them in place. Oof. And similarly, uh, have you seen the original movie poster for this? Uh, I don't think so. I've it's like two sets of eyes, oh, like yes. above and below with yes, the yes, title yes. in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are not the actor's eyes. Those oh. are the actual uh, Smith oh, and those Hickok. Are the dude's eyes? Yeah, so it's Ooh. actually their close-ups of their eyes uh, on the poster. And this was a critical and commercial success. This earned uh, $13 million on a $1 million budget, which would be nearly $100 million today. And it earned Oscar nominations for Best Screenplay, Score, Cinematography, and Director, but it did not win any of them that year. Wow. What did? Uh, Let's see, 67? Mm -hmm. 
no. Is this what? an area of trivia that you're good at? No, it is <laughs> usually, and I'm blanking. Like, 67 was the year that Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate were all nominated. It was, like, a big year. Whoa. Bonnie and Clyde and this came out in the same year. Yeah, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, this is from 1967, which we found oh, was right. the, the year that appears on this list the yeah. most. So, technically, Roger Ebert's greatest film year, allegedly. <laughs> um huh. I'll have to look that up. I forget what won this year, but mm-hmm. yeah, this did not win anything. Um, huh. So, oh no, it was In the Heat of the Night. Oh. That's what won this year, In the Heat of the Night, okay. Sidney Poitier. Good movie. Congratulations. Yes, thank <laughs> you. I got there eventually. Um, yeah, I think those are kind of about all my notes on that. I mean, did you have anything else you wanted to add about this one? Uh, just that this was like, I, I, I'm glad that I watched this. I really, I really was not expecting to like it, like, until the very end um i don't know if i would ever watch it again because i don't really i'm not usually inclined to movies that are so unrelentingly miserable Mm. (laughs) um and just yeah yeah i i i'm really glad that i stuck with it because i did it did really force me to like look at myself and what i think of the prison system especially right now yeah um yeah i think it was it was very nuanced it was very uh it was it was a very elegantly told uh, story and a very mm-hmm. well done movie and I I really was yeah. not expecting to like this one this much but I did mm-hmm. like it quite a bit yeah um so I guess we're, we're we've started the ranking portion <laughs> of our show now uh, because last week we only had Unchained Andalus so that mm-hmm. was our default best movie default. on the list uh, would you put this one above that one I would I, I have would more too. thoughts about this one I think uh, the one we did last week I just like let wash over me and I was like that was strange but like. I don't think it'll stick with me the same way that this will. No, and Unchien Andalou is not really a movie you necessarily like like or dislike. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of, You're oh, like, oh, okay, I that digested happened. that piece of art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't connect with it on any kind of emotional <laughs> level like I did with this one. Right, but, um, right, right. Yeah, definitely. This one was very thought-provoking. It's very mm-hmm. smart and definitely worth checking out. I think this would be considered more of like a modern classic if it was more accessible, it was mm. more available like Yeah. Uh if it's not streaming anywhere, I had to rent it. Same. Um yeah, so like it's mm-hmm. I don't know. It's worth tracking down though. It's mm-hmm. it's worth tracking down. It's 2 hours and yeah. 15 minutes. It's in the minutes, Criterion like collection. Is it? Yep. Nice, nice. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I should have checked Criterion channel before <laughs> I rented it. Damn it. All right. It's okay. Um, well, thank you so much for being here yeah. once again, talking Thanks about In me. Cold Blood. What are we watching next week? Oh boy, next week we are getting uh, into one of our long ones, oh, okay. uh, but it's an entertaining long one, and okay. it's one that I've been interested slash curious to revisit for a long time. It's one that I suspect oh has this, not aged terribly our, well. This, this buildup is killing me. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, we're watching Oliver Stone's JFK. Oh! Oh, shit. JFK. Uh, okay. I am very curious to see how a movie about conspiracy theories has aged yeah. in our era of fake news. It's been uh, 30 years now, so I'm excited to dig into it. But oh we are watching JFK. Okay. Got to get mentally prepared for that one. So tune in for that one next Ooh. time. Uh, you can find us at RogersListPod at gmail.com. That's also our Twitter handle. That's also our letterbox handle if you want to see our rankings. And uh, Ooh, My letterbox handle if anybody cares, mm-hmm. is Michaela, M-I-K-A-Y-L-A, Tian Li, T-I-A-N-L-I. Um, so you should follow me there because I yes. use Letterboxd 
all the time. Awesome. Yes, and I don't remember my handle off the top of my head, but <laughs> I, I will. You have like Ultra 64 as your profile. That's my logo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Ultra 64 is my other podcast. You can check that out, ultra64podcast.com. It's kind of wherever you want to mm-hmm. see it's podcasts. It's like this, but with video games. It's like this, but with Roger video Ebert. games. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Not no Roger Ebert, but less, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right, everybody. We will see you next week for JFK. Ay, 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 just a cold-blooded man Girl don't believe in his lies Can't trust a cold-blooded man He'll love you and leave you alive There's one thing you must understand You can't trust a cold